we're going to be uh, this morning in uh, the book of Philippians, and we're going to uh, get close to the end of chapter 1 there. So go ahead and open up in Philippians 1. Uh, it doesn't take a whole lot of uh, listening to anything, radio, TV, being on the internet, to realize that America is a divided country when it comes to politics. And we know that. We've lived that for years. It's pretty, it's, it's pretty interesting, though. You can look up the uh, daily approval rating for Donald Trump. There's a Gallup poll, and it updates daily. So if you're really into that kind of thing, you can check every day. Uh, the most recent, now, I don't think they do it on Saturday. most recent was from Friday. And uh, you know, 56% of Americans disapprove of what Trump is doing, and 39% approve. I don't know what other follow-up questions. Someone's upset about that up there. Uh, Perhaps an interesting poll would be whether people think President Trump acts in a way worthy of the presidency of the United States of America. Does he act in a way worthy of the presidency? Are his choices, his policies, whether domestic or international, his speeches, his use of his Twitter account, his uh, and you, I think you could add this in our media-saturated America, his use of ketchup on his steak things that we spend way too much time talking about. Yes, he does do that. Worthy of the presidency. Does he act and speak in a way appropriate to the office? Now, maybe there are some who approve of his policies who pause at this question. Do his speech and actions match up to the privileges and responsibilities he's been given? Does he act in a way that's appropriate or disgraceful to the Oval Office? Does it bring honor or shame to the United States? No doubt in America, you can find many answers to those questions. But as important as being the face of America is, both domestically and internationally, each of God's children is given a greater responsibility. In fact, I think you can argue that it is an infinitely greater responsibility. The responsibility is infinitely greater because God the Father is infinitely greater than any founding fathers. Because the gospel of Christ is infinitely greater than any constitution. Because the kingdom of Christ is infinitely greater than any nation. Because the throne of Christ is infinitely greater than any earthly office. See, what you do today matters infinitely more. And I've been thinking this is true or not, and I believe it is. What you do today matters infinitely more than what the president does. Because you who are saints have been given the privilege and responsibility of living worthy of something infinitely greater than America. And I'm going to read that again just to kind of help us think about that. What you do today matters infinitely more than what the president does. Because you who are saints, who are God's children, who have new life in Christ, have been given the privilege and responsibility of living worthy of something infinitely greater than America. You are given the privilege and responsibility of living worthy of the gospel of Christ. Before we read Philippians 1, verses 21 to 30, and that's what we're going to read this morning, let's remember the scene that Paul's writing from. The Apostle Paul is in prison in Rome for the proclamation of Christ, awaiting trial before the increasingly unhinged Emperor Nero. He's hopeful he'll be released, but execution is a real possibility. He's writing to the much-beloved church at Philippi in the northeast corner of Greece. Paul's team had preached the gospel for the first time in Philippi about 10 years previously. The newly planted church had supported him in his missionary endeavors ever since. 
The Philippians were eager to see how Paul was doing. But Paul was also eager to address concerns regarding the churches. He had heard reports, reports of disunity, reports of fear in the face of persecution. So let's go ahead and open your Bibles today. Philippians 1, verses 21 to 30. For me, this is Paul speaking here, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence, and really he's talking about his proud confidence in Christ Jesus, in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Let's pray. Father, we hear an important charge from your word this morning to live worthy of the gospel of Christ. And I pray, Father, that you would help us understand this morning what that is, that you would unite our hearts around that purpose, that you would work through your word, that your spirit would, would make it alive to us, so that we would be transformed as we seek to be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Chapter 1, verse 27, really begins a long section of Paul's instructions that's going to continue on to chapter 2, verse 18. Today we're going to focus on verse 27 and part of 28. Paul begins this section in verse 27 with precision. Excuse me, there's a cord here. If I trip, someone can come and get me. Uh, anyways, he begins in verse 127 with a precise word, only. Only. The word for only in the Greek is put in the front for emphasis, only. Paul says, here's the most important thing. This is your central responsibility. And Paul then really simplifies the many responsibilities of the Christian life to just a few words to a simple command. It's an easy-to-understand command, but one that ripples to all of life. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Today, we're going to first look at this command to live worthy of the gospel. And second, we're going to look at three characteristics of living worthy of the gospel so that we'll reveal the infinite value of the gospel on the stage of our short and finite lives. So we're going to look at this command to live worthy of the gospel. We're going to look at three characteristics of living worthy of the gospel for the purpose that we would reveal the infinite value of the gospel on this short, finite stage of our lives. So let's look at that command to live worthy first. Paul's focusing word only is followed with the only specific command we come to until chapter 2, verse 2. 
The word there, uh, it's, it's translated as, as conduct yourselves or let your manner of life, if you're reading from the English Standard Version. Both of these tra- translations, whether conduct yourselves or live your manner of life, miss out on a nuance in the Greek word. It's possible to make too much of it, but it is present. It's there. Paul doesn't use the normal word often translated to, to walk or to live. Instead, the verb has the idea of living as a citizen, with a view both to the blessings and the obligations that accompany being a citizen. For the city of Philippi in Greece, having the status of Roman citizens was part of the city's, uh, of the city's identity. It's how they viewed themselves. We see some of the importance of being Roman citizens and how the Philippians held that as part of their identity in, in, in Acts 16. You don't have to turn that all, just read a couple verses. In Acts 16, 20 to 21, this is the mob that rises against Paul when he was first there in the city. When the mob had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, These men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming customs which it's not lawful for us to accept or to observe, being Romans. Now, this Philippi is in Greece. They are Greeks, but they embrace their Roman citizenship. They hold it important to them. And how they're living wasn't worthy of being Romans. At least that was the charge that they bring against them. You see, when it, when it comes time to get some in trouble, you, they say they're not being good Romans. In Acts 16, 37 to 39, this is after uh, Paul was beaten with rods. Him and Silas were in jail that, where, where they were singing. And the, uh, the earthquake comes and they are released. The Philippian jailer and members of his family get saved. Well, the magistrates come and they want to uh, release Paul quietly. But listen to what Paul says in Acts 16, verses 37 to 39. Again, this is just to show how important being a citizen was to their mindset. Paul said to them, They have beaten us in public without trial, men who are Romans. And so he kind of plays his trump card there. We're Romans too. You didn't know that. Didn't see that coming. Men who are Romans and have thrown us into prison, and now are they sending us away secretly? No, indeed. They're so proud of their Roman citizenship. We're Romans too. But let them come themselves and bring us out. The policemen reported these words to the chief magistrates. They were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. Because Romans shouldn't be treating Romans that way. And they came and appealed to them. And when they had brought them out, they kept begging them to, to, to leave the city. See, in Philippi, being a citizen of Rome was a big deal. It came with rights and responsibilities. It came with privileges and duties. But it was important So Paul dips into some of that public sentiment to help the Philippians think about what their greater responsibility is. Later in Philippians 3.20, Paul uses some of the same idea of living as citizens. Philippians 3.20 says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. But here in chapter 1, verse 27, Paul only hints at the idea, live as citizens. If the rest of the Philippians were to live as citizens of Rome, if being Roman was going to affect their choices, how they treated people coming to preach their gospel, it affected their identity, how much more should the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ, being a citizen of heaven, affect the day-to-day lives of the Philippian Christians? They were to live worthy of that privilege. To live worthy means to live appropriately, to live in a way that's fitting, that's suitable, in a way that exalts the infinite value of the gospel, rather than in a way that cheapens it, that accentuates the gospel instead of minimizes it, that honors the gospel instead of brings shame to it, 
that reveals its validity instead of discredits it in a way that matches up with the blessing of the gospel. Now, we expect people to live uh, worthy of all kinds of blessings, whether that's the school that they graduated from and now that they, they represent, the uniform that they wear, whether of a, a, of a branch of the military or of a certain team, the country that they represent. We expect athletes to live worthy of their abilities, their prominence, their paycheck. We expect people to live worthy of their, pu- of their, of their public office. Uh, and some of you pro- probably heard about some of the recent scandals around the dean of the USC medical school. It's, it's, it's big news. That's not worthy of this public office. How could he do all those things? When people don't live worthy, the media notices, right? It's tantalizing news. Why? I think that the, the, the incongruity makes us feel better about ourselves. Their fall is an opportunity to excuse our own discrepancies, our own unworthiness. The lost world seems particularly eager to expose the hypocrisies in confessing Christians. Those around us are salivating, waiting to see an incongruity between the truth we proclaim and how we live. Now, if the world sees the importance of living worthy, whether it's of your American citizenship of being a member of a certain branch of the military, of being a UCLA graduate, of being athletically or academically gifted, how infinitely more important is it for the saints to live worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ? How infinitely more important is it for saints to live worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Now, no doubt here, Paul is not just referring to the message of the gospel, but to the reality behind it. The reality that he's going to talk about in Philippians 2, 6 through 11, about Jesus existing in the form of God, not regarding quality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That reality, living worthy of those truths, of God the Son humbling himself, taking upon himself the form of a servant, becoming obedient to the point of death, even the shameful death on the cross, of being worthy of the good news of God's holiness, of his love, of his mercy, and of his grace, of being worthy of the good news of all these key doctrines we hold dear, the good news of God being an electing God, of him being a regenerating God, a forgiving God, a redeeming God, a justifying God, a reconciliating God, an adopting God, a God who sends his spirit to indwell in us, a God who sanctifies us through his spirit. The good news that we need to be worthy of is the good news of Jesus Christ reigning right now. Of him ruling over all of the created order. Of the eternity that we have to look forward to. Of the reward that we have waiting for us. Of the unimaginable, unfathomable, unquantifiable privilege of knowing Jesus Christ. That's what we are to live worthy of. So Paul says, everyone in Philippi is anxious about being a good Roman citizen. Or, or for us here, a good American. But you, your primary concern, only this, the main thing, 
must be to be a good citizen of heaven. Don't do anything to bring shame on the gospel that you proclaim. Don't bring any disgrace on your Savior. Instead, live in a way that, you, that reveals that you know who King Jesus is, that he is your king. Now, living worthy is a common theme in, in the New Testament, and there's so many different ways you could apply living worthy. In Colossians 1, 10 through 12, we see some ways we need to live worthy. Colossians 1, verses 10 through 12, this is Paul's prayer for them, says, So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects. And then he describes four ways we are to walk worthy, by bearing fruit in every good work. That's how we walk worthy. We walk worthy and increasing in the knowledge of God. By being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. We walk worthy by joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints and the light. That's how we are to walk worthy, by bearing fruit and increasing in knowledge and being strengthened in power for steadfastness and patience. By giving thanks to the Father. That's what living worthy looks like in Colossians 1, 10 through 12. We also see this phrase living worthy, and although again it's a different a verb there for living, in Ephesians 4 verses 1 through 3. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now we're going to look at some broad characteristics characteristics of living worthy next but from what we've already looked at are you living worthy of the gospel is that your only 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 conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel that's the thing i want more than anything to not bring any shame upon christ that's my only to live worthy can you say that do you pray, Lord, help me live worthy of the gospel this day. Help me to live worthy of the precious blood of Christ. Help me to live worthy of redemption, to live worthy of your promises, to live worthy of your indwelling presence. It's kind of exciting to think about living worthy. And some of you maybe know the story of Jacqueline or Jack Lucas. He, 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 he was a United States Ma, ma, marine, I always stutter on that word, at least I'm consistent, who enlisted at the age of 14, which is crazy in itself, right? Enlisted at the age of 14 during World War II. So during a close firefight in two trenches between Jack Lucas and three Marines against 11 Jap Jap Japanese soldiers during the Battle of Iwo Jima, Lucas saves the lives of the three Marines he's fighting with. Two enemy hand grenades are thrown into the trench where he is. So then unhesitatingly, he places himself, he throws himself on one of those grenades, while in the next instant pulling the other grenade underneath him. One wasn't enough. He's going to cover both of them. The grenade he covered with his body exploded and wounded only him. The other grenade didn't explode. So this is the, 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 the youngest serviceman in World War II to be awarded the Medal of Honor. And what happened is those other three soldiers 
left Lucas for dead. I mean, certain that he was after the grenade exploded under him. He lived, uh, went through over 20 surgeries, and continued to live with over 200 pieces of shrapnel in his body. Now, those Marines, probably the rest of their life, had a tough question to answer, particularly as Jack Lucas continued to live, going through surgery after surgery, his body full of shrapnel. How were they going to live worthy of that sacrifice? How were they going to live worthy of that sacrifice? What kind of soldier would they be? What kind of men would they be? I'm sure every time they thought of him, it was a constant reminder to me, I've got to use my life as well as possible. How would you live worthy if someone were to exchange their life for yours? Whether pushing you out of an oncoming vehicle, a fireman who dies rescuing you from a burning building, or maybe even someone who is horribly scarred or disfigured rescuing you. How would you live worthy of that exchange? If we ask those kinds of questions when one human gives their life for another human, when one creature gives their life for another creature, how much more must we ask that question when the Son of God bears the full brunt of the wrath of God for the enemies of God? And that is what we were. How can we live worthy of the infinite blood of Christ? Now, the point here isn't to become worthy, right? We know that that's part of the gospel. We can never become worthy of the gospel of Christ. We can't make up for our sins. We can't do enough good to make ourselves acceptable to God. We have to come to him at the very beginning as unworthy, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Any attempts to make ourselves worthy of salvation are not going to work. They're going to fail. It can't be done. Saving faith is believing in Christ alone. But the question isn't how you become worthy, but how you live worthy of this sacrifice after you've been saved. How are you to live appropriately as possible in a way that brings as much glory as possible to strive for an integrity between the price that Christ paid and the choices that we daily make for there to be as little discrepancy as possible between the blood of Christ and our actions and our thoughts and our words. See, Paul's only, and it was just stated a few verses er earlier, a little bit differently, for me to live as Christ. But he was really saying the same thing. I want to live worthy of Jesus Christ. I want to live in a way that exalts his sacrifice. I want to live by his power. I want to live for his glory. I want to make him known. I want to show the value of the gospel. Is that your only? If it hasn't been, repent. God is gracious. He's forgiving. Commit again to say, I want my only, my only today to be to live worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, to the Philippian church, who is facing both disunity from within, they're facing opposition from without, Paul emphasizes three particular characteristics of living worthy. Now, maybe if he knew Cornerstone as well as he knew the church of Philippi, he might write something different. But we know that God has preserved this letter for us here, and I think that we're going to find it challenging. So we're going to look at what these three characteristics of worthy living are. And the first is standing firm. 
The first characteristic of worthy living is standing firm. Now, some of us may expect it to be holy living, right? I'm going to live worthy. I'm I'm, going to avoid all kinds of sin. And that's part of this. But Paul says standing firm. So let's look at that in verse 27. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. You are standing firm in one spirit. Now, Paul was hopeful he'd be released from his upcoming trial, but it wasn't, it wasn't certain. And even if he were released, he didn't know that Philippi was going to be his first stop back. It might be a while. So he was hoping that whether he was there in person or that he would simply hear that they were standing firm in one spirit. And this is really Paul describing what living worthy is. It's standing firm in one spirit. Standing firm is to be resolute, to be unwavering, to be standing firm in the confession of Christ as Lord. Standing firm in the reliance upon Christ alone for salvation. To be standing firm in their submission to the truth of God's word. That God's word is true and defines truth. Standing firm in their loyal obedience to God's commands. The Philippians were to be steadfast. They were not to be knocked down by waves of opposition. They were not to bend under the pressure to compromise or to buckle under the weight of malicious gossip and slander that was no doubt going on in Philippi. They were not to succumb to the allure of maybe having a less dogmatic stance, something that's a little less black and white, maybe a more palatable gospel. They were not to wilt under the heat of temptation. They were to be steadfast, to stand firm. They were to stand like Peter and John stood firm before the Sanhedrin in Acts 4, or like Stephen stood firm in Acts 7. Paul had stood firm time after time. He had stood firm before the Sanhedrin, before Felix, before Festus, before Agrippus. He was waiting to stand firm before Nero. It's tough for us not to talk about standing firm without thinking about the reformer Martin Luther. On April 18, 1521, at Worms, or as Andrew would say, probably Worms, right? Yeah, there you go. In, in, In Germany, Luther stood before Emperor Charles V. When called on to recant by the Catholic Church, Luther famously stood. He said, Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the Scripture and by clear reason, for I do not trust in the Pope or councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves, I am bound by the Scriptures I have quoted. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and I will not retract anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. May God help me. Amen. And then he says, Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. The Philippians needed to stand firm. They were not to simply stand firm, though. They were to stand firm in one spirit. They were to be linked arm in arm, holding the line together. I'm reminded of the legends behind the Battle of of Thermopylae, where the 300 Spartans held off thousands of Persians. The actual story is a little bit more messy than that, but it makes for a good story, right? The 300 holding off thousands is actually far more on both sides. But you get that idea of them holding that pass against a huge horde of soldiers. But they do that as they stand together. The church in Philippi had cracks forming. They were becoming splintered. They weren't unified, at least not as they once were. They weren't always of one spirit. And and, and we don't know all the 
the details here besides uh, what Paul says in Philippians 4, verses 1 and 2, where he says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge you, Odia, and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in, in the Lord. That, that, that's as specific as we get about what the disunity was. Although in the beginning of chapter 2, we're going to see some more about unity. Perhaps there were other rumors that had come to Paul as well. But if we, if Cornerstone Bible Church, if we as brothers and sisters are going to live worthy of the gospel, we have to stand firm in one spirit. We must not be divided. We must not be divided by ethnicity, by education or salary, by the length of time we've been members of Cornerstone Bible Church, by the care group we attend, or the ministry we serve in, by our favorite radio preacher, by our schooling choices, we must not be divided by any of those things. We must not even be divided by those less significant doctrinal areas, even though we seek to get clarity. Wasn't it a blessing seeing our new members here? Now, we stand firm with those 17 people, right? We stand firm arm in arm with them. Their strand is inseparable from our collective rope. When one of us moves, or maybe one of our students goes away to college, they have to put their strand into a new rope if you're going to be, live worthy of standing firm. We can't do this alone. We need one another. Paul is clear. We live worthy we show the excellency of the gospel. We demonstrate the value of Christ by standing firm in one spirit. That's how we live worthy. Now, like I said in chapter 2, we're going to see more of, of practically how we do that. But here the focus is we live worthy of the gospel of Christ by standing firm with those who've been saved by the gospel of Christ. We live worthy of the gospel of Christ by standing firm with those who've been saved by the gospel of Christ. But it's almost as if Paul is concerned that the Philippians might get the wrong idea. The living worthy is just stationary. It's purely about not losing ground. So instead, Paul raises the stakes with the next characteristic we're going to look at. The second characteristic of living worthy is striving together. The second characteristic of living worthy is striving together. We see that in, in verse 27. I'll read the whole thing again. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. And now Paul describes what that standing firm is. With one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And I made these, these three par parallel, really, this, uh, he's going to describe in a couple ways what that standing firm is. It's striving together for the faith of the gospel. Now, the idea here is almost a, a, a restatement. One mind is intentionally parallel to one spirit. He finishes with one spirit, and then he says one, one, one mind. And really, they're very tough uh, to tell the difference between those two. The emphasis here is not the difference between soul and, and, and mind or spirit and mind. The purpose here is that they have a common purpose, that they be unified. point here that he's emphasizing is that they be unified. Now, he's already described living worthy as standing, and some have described that as a military term, as having your feet firmly planted, as not losing ground. 
not, not letting that pass fall. But here, Paul instead uses an athletic term, striving together. If you have the ESV, striving side by side. It's with striving, with one another. It's competing together, contending together, wrestling together, if that's possible. Living worthy is not for lone wolves. It's not boxing or MMA. Neither is living worthy, though, a spectator sport. Missionaries, evangelists, pastors, aren't the gladiators we gather to cheer on? Aren't they doing awesome? Living worthy is a team competition. And the trophy that we're playing for is the glory of Christ. Our mutual purpose must be for the faith of the gospel to advance, to gain ground, for more laborers to enter the harvest, for more slaves to be set free, for more prisoners of hell to be released, to win more worshipers of Christ through proclaiming the gospel of Christ. Now, obviously, this striving together is not going to be accomplished by going rogue. It's accomplished through the local church, through our being arm in arm, almost like, you know, the Borg, if you watch Star Trek, with one mind, okay? Thank you for a couple laughs out there. We know now who all the nerds are. Arm in arm with one mind. It's that team pushing the ball down the field, gaining ground inch by inch. Striving together is not hiding out in foxholes. Now, it's good to not lose ground, though, right? It's good, it's good to stand firm. It's good to not lose ground. Instead, we need to go beyond that. We need a sanctified ambition. We need to be ambitious for God's glory. Not for our glory, but for Christ's glory. We need to be ambitious for God's glory to spread beyond the walls of your home and into your neighborhood. Beyond your cubicle and into the cubicles around you. Beyond the walls of this church and into Fullerton. Beyond the borders of America and into unreached people groups. We need this sanctified ambition so we strive together trying to accomplish something together. Now it's true we should contend geographically. But we also do need to contend doctrinally as well. We must fight for the once and for all delivered faith. The faith of the gospel. Standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. We must fight for the inerrancy of scripture. For the deity of Christ. For the truth that Jesus was born of a virgin. That he rose again from the dead. That he reigns in heaven and right now. That salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. That's what we have to strive together for. That's the truth we need to strive together for. And we need to have this ambition to strive for that truth together so that that gospel goes out. But we, have, we can only do that striving together if we're of one mind. We can't gain ground if we're gossiping about one another. If we're excluding some for the preference of others. If we're holding at a distance our brothers and sisters in Christ, it really was awesome being here at VBS last week. I love this church. I'm very thankful to be here. It was sweet to see how many people were serving, but I was also blessed to see how many of our new families were here serving. 
Some of you weren't here to see it. Five of our new families who just became members were here serving this week. Others brought their kids. I'm thankful for that. That is striving together for the faith of the gospel. It requires all of us to participate, for all of us to use the gifts that God has given you, for you to be strategically deployed for Christ's glory, for us to make that our joint prayer request. So let me ask, who are you contending with? Who's fighting at your side? Is your care group praying together so that you can gain some new ground for the gospel? Are you getting a little anxious to see some new converts? I'm very excited to have our new members. Are you excited to see some new people saved? Are you getting a little jealous that Christ is not receiving enough glory? We need to be praying together for that. Are you supporting one another in the defense of doctrine? Are you learning from one another how to speak about the gospel better? Are you sharing with one another your struggles against sin so you can have each other's back? Are you being humble, confessing your sins to one another so that one another can pray for you, so that we can hold you accountable? See, God's plan is not for you to be a Rambo, okay? It's not just you with a knife gritted behind your teeth while you go get some gospel progress. See, Paul and Barnabas were sent out by a local church, they function as part of a team, always. When Paul gets shipwrecked, there's like people with him. Paul repeatedly begged the saints to pray for him. He was a soldier in an army, not a lone ranger. He had an ambition, though, right? And we need to pray. And if nothing else, let's start there. Pray for a sanctified ambition. Pray that we would strive together for the faith of the gospel. That by God's grace, we can look at our next right hand of fellowship and there's a newly saved person there. Could we pray for that together? How exciting would that be? Doesn't your soul need that? My soul needs that, right? Now, maybe it won't be next time. Maybe the time after that. But let's all, let's, let's that be what our care groups pray for. Living worthy requires that we stand firm in one spirit. It requires that we strive together in one mind. But there's a third characteristic. The third characteristic of living worthy is that we are staying alert. That we are staying alert. It says, as we are talking about staying alert, in verse 28, in no way alarmed by your opponents. Now, the first half of kind of the way that Paul describes standing firm is striving together for the faith of the gospel. This is the, the second, the, 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 the parallel half. In no way ashamed by, in no way alarmed by your opponents. The word alarmed here was used for startling a horse, for spooking a herd of horses and they scatter. Paul warns, don't panic. Don't be frightened by your enemies. Don't get weirded out when you read on Facebook about how horrible the world's getting. Stay alert. Stay alert, knowing that you will be opposed for contending for the gospel. Living worthy requires you to not be afraid. Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 10, verses 28 to 31, Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent, 
Yet none of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. Sparrows. Don't be afraid of your opponents. Now, we're not sure who these opponents are. Maybe it's the same kind of opponent that, that we read about in Acts 16. People whose lifestyle was somehow hindered by, by the gospel being proclaimed, who bring up a mob together, basically coming and lying and saying, Paul and these other ones, they're, they're hurting our Roman way of life. We're not not sure what all the opponents were doing or who they were. It was common attack on Christianity that Christianity was incompatible with being a good citizen. Incompatible to believe truth. Incompatible to say that there's a right and wrong. Incompatible to say that there's only one God. That being a Christian undermined the stability of the Roman Empire. So those are the kind of texts that often happen. We don't really know what they were going through. Paul's point isn't what they were going through, but stay alert. Now, this is unlikely the first time that Paul had told them that opposition was coming. And Acts 14.22 describes how Paul revisited the newly churches he had planted. Acts 14.22. It says that he went around strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Is that true of us too? Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul says to Timothy, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 1 Peter 4.12 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. Don't be surprised which comes upon you for your testing as though something strange were happening to you. Don't be surprised. Stay alert of the opposition you're going to face. It's going to happen. Matthew 10.22, Jesus said, You will be hated by all men because of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. The testimony of Scripture is clear. We will face opposition. When we proclaim that Jesus is the only way, we will face opposition. When we call sin what the Bible calls sin, we will face opposition. We'll face opposition when we warn people that God holds them accountable for their sin, that hell is real and eternal. We will face opposition when we announce that Jesus Christ is alive and that he is returning to judge. These are the essential truths if we are going to strive together for the advance of the gospel. God's truth is offensive to those who crave autonomy. These truths are offensive. The truth that one true God made himself known in only one book is offensive. The truth that God defines what's right and wrong for his creatures is offensive. The truth that God defines what the consequences of sin are is offensive. The truth that the only way to be saved is through Jesus Christ is offensive. All of those truths strike at the heart of autonomy. Man believes that he has the right to determine truth, to determine what's right and wrong, to determine what the consequences are, and to determine how he escapes those consequences. If we are going to live worthy of the gospel, we have to speak the gospel. And if we're going to speak the gospel, we have to be ready to be opposed for the gospel. And so we have to ask ourselves, are we being opposed for the truth of the gospel? And I believe if you are zealous for God's worship, if you are giving praise to God for what he has done, you'll face some opposition. 
If you mercifully warn your neighbors and your co-workers and your family that judgment is coming because you care for them, because you love your neighbor, you will face opposition. If you point to Jesus Christ as the only hope, you'll be opposed. 2 Timothy 1 verse 8 says, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Now, this maybe sounds a little bleak. We're going to look next week and see that there's a lot of comfort as we suffer for Christ. We're going to see the comfort in verses 28 to 30. There is comfort for those who suffer for Christ. But the immediate focus here is that living worthy of the gospel requires that we stay alert, that we're not startled, that we're not spooked when we're opposed. To stay alert that the gospel will face opposition. To be alert that holy living will be met with scorn. But we don't face that opposition alone, do we? He's already talked about that. We stand firm together. We strive together. Together we stay alert. Much like our last sermon from Philippians, Paul has simplified the focus of your life under the Lordship of Christ. Last time it was pretty simple. For me to live is Christ. Really, Pastor John's sermon last Sunday was one of those simplifying, love God with all my heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Paul does that again here. This time, God says to you through his messenger, only. And what should you do when God says to you, only? Listen, right? Listen. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. I'm going to boil it down for you, Paul says. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, often, when we speak of living worthy, we think about staying away from sin. I'm not doing anything that would bring overt shame to Christ. And that's true. Living worthy requires staying away from sin. But it also requires our standing firm, our striving together for the faith of the gospel, and our staying alert in the face of opposition. By living worthy... By standing firm and striving together and staying alert is how we use this finite, passing, temporary stage of our lives to spotlight the infinite value of Christ. By living worthy is how we use this finite stage of our lives, which is over so quickly, to put the spotlight on the infinite value of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the instruction that you give us. Lord, you know uh, your, your word is huge. And there's many commands there. You simplify it for us. Only to live worthy of the gospel of Christ. Father, I pray that you would help us to live worthy of this incredible good news that we can be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in your Son alone. Pray, Father, that we would live in a way that is appropriate, that doesn't distract from Jesus Christ, but that exalts Jesus Christ, that doesn't minimize him, but that maximizes him, that doesn't devalue him, but that exalts him, 
that puts him on display with the spotlight of our lives for everyone to see how incredible Jesus Christ is. The Apostle Paul here is very clear, Lord, that's going to be hard for us. We're going to have to be resolved to stand firm. We're going to have to be resolved to strive together, to seek, to contend, and to advance, to take inch by inch the gospel further out, to fight for every new soul that is saved, to stay alert knowing that we're going to be opposed, to know that that is part of what being a Christian is. I pray, Father, that you would help us to live worthy of the gospel of Christ, that we would have one another's backs, that we would be asking one another how, how, how we can strengthen one another, how we can be unified together so that Christ is revealed in all of his beauty. We just look briefly from Philippians 2. Father, your plan to exalt Christ over everything, that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. We pray, Father, you would help us in this small window of time that we have to make the most of it and to bring as much glory to Christ as possible by living worthy of Jesus Christ. Father, we can't do any of this on our own. We want to be resolved. We want to work hard. We want to use the strength that you give. We want to rely upon the grace of Christ. But we come dependently, knowing that this is your work through your spirit, through our being unified with Christ. So we need your help, Lord, so that we can be this kind of church. Please, Father, help us to be a church that stands and that advances the gospel and that is on guard, Lord. Help us to be ready to be used by you, ready to speak of your praises, ready to proclaim your name, ready to love those who need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. Please use us in this way in this upcoming week. And we do ask you, Lord, we ask, Father, whether it's at the next membership class or the one after that, that there be newly saved people. We don't believe that you're done. Like Paul, Lord, help us to suffer all things for the sake of the elect. You know how poorly I do this, Lord, but I want to do better at it. Please, Lord, help us to do better. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.